Welcome to the Advance Born Global podcast. I'm Johanna Pittman, CEO of Advance, the non-profit organisation that shines a spotlight on the impact of outstanding global Australians. In this podcast series, we meet all 34 game changers recognised in the 2022 Global Australian Awards. These inspiring game changers generously share the story of their international career journey with us, the highlights and challenges, and what motivates them in their work. I hope you enjoy getting to know these inspiring game changers. In this episode, we meet Professor Kate Mann, a 2022 game changer for her work as a renowned philosopher and social and political commentator challenging today's social norms. I loved hearing how Kate looks at the world and stimulates and leads discussions that can shape our thinking. I guess to kick off, if you were sharing what you do with, let's say, a high school audience, how do you describe what you do and and how would you describe to them what your day-to-day looks like as well? So I'm a moral philosopher by trade, so I think about questions about what we ought to do, what we ought not to do, what we're permitted to do, what we're not permitted to do. And as someone who pursues those questions through a feminist lens, I'm particularly interested in questions about what it's not the case that we ought to do. So ways in which socially we might be laboring under a delusion that we're obligated to do something that we're not obligated to do in moral reality. So as women, for example, we might feel obligated to smile um, when a stranger tells us to smile on a train or a bus or what have you. And in reality, that's not a moral obligation. You don't owe your happy face to anyone. So that's an example of the kind of debunking work that I like to do, showing that something you might have felt guilty or ashamed about not doing is in fact not your moral duty whatsoever. So that's something that I I do. And um, in terms of the day-to-day work that that involves, um, you know, it involves a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, a lot of writing, and also talking to journalists to try to get these ideas out there as well as writing op-eds myself. Um, But just in the last week, I've spoken to journalists from this afternoon, the New York Times, um, CNN, Fortune, um, a couple of other outlets, USA Today, to try to um, answer questions that journalists have had about the current issues over um, abortion no longer being a constitutional right in the US, thanks to the US Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs uh, just last Friday at the time we're recording. So journalists have asked me to weigh in on questions about how that might represent a way in which women's moral freedoms to decide what happens to our bodies are being infringed upon. It's so great to get also that perspective of the journalist turning to Mm -hmm. you at a time like this as a philosopher that it seems like one of the sort of fields that um, no one thinks about when they ask you Mm -hmm. what you what you're going to do when you grow up (laughs) Um, what how about for you when did you know that that was the field that you really wanted to um, focus on yeah well I think I had a a slightly unusual uh, introduction to philosophy because my dad's best friend Raymond Gaeta is um, a really wonderful and well-known philosopher um, 
and uh, he and my dad thought from quite a young age that I had a, a, a kind of an interest in philosophical questions. I think that was probably wishful thinking when I was just five years old, but whatever the case, they made me um, have a sense of myself as someone who might be interested in these deep questions about the nature of existence and the nature of morality and thinking about thinking. And so it was really from quite a young age that I had a sense that philosophy might be a path I wanted to take later in life, um, which was a wonderful opportunity to um, think of myself as um, a serious thinker even from a young age. So um, although I didn't necessarily expect to be an academic philosopher uh, from the outset, it's also something that was always made available to me as a possibility growing up, which, um, as I said, was something, a really wonderful gift um, from both my parents, um, both of whom are, are public intellectuals in Australia. Uh, Robert and Anne Mann, for anyone who hasn't put uh, the, the surnames together, but um, they both really encouraged me to explore this um, this interest in these big, deep, difficult questions that never really get answered, but in a way the point is to have more and more intelligent, fruitful disagreements over them, and they were the kinds of disagreements that we would often engage in in this wonderful way over the dinner table. What a conversation that would have been um, each night. Uh. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> one uh, anecdote that I can tell you about that is my, my dad kindly drove me to my first philosophy exam when I was a university student at, at the University of Melbourne, and we were so uh, preoccupied with discussing uh, free will and determinism, this classic question about whether people are really free from causal determination, that we drove, I think, about two hours past our destination. And both of us are such absent-minded professor types <laughs> that we were completely <laughs> preoccupied with this wonderful, characteristically um, intense conversation we were having and shot past my exam. Fortunately, we'd set off early enough that it wasn't a problem. But um, yeah, that is indeed of how I grew up with lots of, um, yeah, a sense of uh, really vivid intellectual life that I was welcomed into. I, I've, I see from those discussions and debates and having those fruitful debates that they can get nasty. And I just wonder how, what motivates you to work through that and to be able to keep doing what you do and having the impact that you're having on these debates, particularly when we're in an environment where when things get nasty, it can it, it can be very real and uh, visceral sort of uh, attacks on, on a person. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that question because um, one of the things about uh, thinking and writing as I do about misogyny is that as I sometimes say, uh, misogyny is a self-masking problem. So trying to expose it often attracts more of it to the person who's speaking out against misogyny. Um, something which, you know, I think is probably salient at the moment in the Australian context too. Um, but, um, you know, in my small way, as I speak out against misogyny from admittedly a very privileged position, I really take comfort in the fact that even if I'm not necessarily convincing people who are being abusive or overtly hostile online, um, I'm often uh, 
you know, being um, something I hope of an example to people who might feel intimidated by that kind of misogynistic abuse and who can hopefully by watching me among many, many other feminist and anti-racist commentators see that it is possible to keep speaking out, to keep being confident, to keep being vocal, to keep being loud sometimes in the face of what we take to be injustice, even when there is hostility of a misogynistic or, uh, in some people's cases, racist or classist uh, kind towards that speech. So um, the hope is that, yeah, those witnessing it who might otherwise um, be silenced can see that um, not only is silence not compulsory, it's in a way not an option, given the injustices we're facing. Yeah, it really does set, set the example for others. Um, you've being recognized as one of the great young philosophers in the field and um and i imagine that is a tough crowd to to impress and so the incredible accolades but being what does it mean to you to be recognized by australia with uh something like this so to be a finalist for the global australian awards well, it's incredibly meaningful to me, both because, you know, I feel like I'm in such good company here um, and also because it's such good company that is, to me, a particularly vivid reminder at this point in time of my own heritage, which is so important to me. You know, it matters to me to be an Australian commenting on American public affairs and to have that perspective as someone who's grown up in a country that does things differently in some ways, that does things differently with respect to healthcare. That that um, has, you know, a very different conception, I think, sometimes of women's rights, you know, even though Australia, of course, has a long way to go in those respects, too. Um, you mm. know, it means something to me to be an Australian recognised in this um, really humbling way, um, especially in the current political moment where, you know, I, I really do feel alienated from many aspects of current um, political life in America. Um, and so that Australianness is something that I lean on to get me through the day. Yeah, it's certainly something, um, a, a sort of a time that for us, we've sort of got a kick in our step because we've got we've been uh, gone through the election yes. recently, and and we can feel that revitalization. But um, yeah, there's that's that's a great way to sort of think about being able to lean on that Australian mm. heritage when things aren't when things aren't quite where they you'd like them to be. Um, I guess just the final question on our list here is, um, what advice would you give? either to do you wish you'd had mm. earlier in your career or would you give to someone um that's looking to become an academic and and in the public eye and a thought leader like yourself well thank you i um i was thinking about this question in terms of uh speech and getting used to the sound of your own voice i think there's something really powerful in getting used to using your voice in whatever way that works for you, whether it be in writing, whether it be in public speaking, whether it be in having a certain presence on social media, um, in whatever way works for you in, in uploading videos. But it's often in getting used to that sound of your own voice that you actually begin to learn what you think. Because for me, at least, 
sometimes it's in saying something that I realize that it doesn't actually sit right in my mouth. I didn't actually believe it. And I can feel myself disagreeing with the content of something I've just espoused on the basis of hearing it in my own voice and then being hesitant to go on. Um, so I really encourage, you know, people who are, say, starting off in academia, if you go to a talk, ask a question of the speaker, even if you're worried you might say the wrong thing, or even if you're not quite sure of what you think yet, view it as an opportunity to learn to hear your own voice, learn to um, listen to yourself speak, and learn to um, really try to examine whether you think the thing that you've just said. Um, because for me, at least, that's been a powerful tool to gradually um, crystallizing my own views and hopefully helping others to crystallize their views too in ways that many, many thinkers um, in the political realm, in the moral realm, um, and via a variety of, of ways, including through fiction, have helped me to crystallize my own views in turn. So I kind of see that as ultimately being part of a big epistemic community of people trying to get clearer, think better, have better disagreements with each other, and be part of this ongoing rich conversation that is so important to have um, as part of the humanities and beyond and as part of public life more broadly. Thank you for listening to this episode. For more on global Australian game changes over the last decade, please go to our website advance.org.